I'm doing the introduction. Shut up. Uh, welcome to the Three and R podcast. This is a super special podcast, and by me that I mean the best podcast ever. Uh, I've stolen Scott's computer. This is James Herndon, uh, director of debate at Emory, uh, the Barclay Forum. Uh, and today I have the two lab leaders of the junior six-week indie lab with me, Mr. Scott Phillips, who also coaches debate at Emory. Say hello, Scott. Hello. Uh, and sort of in the background, although he's trying to finish up his classes and get a little thing we call a master's degree, John Turner, uh, who's obviously teaching a lab with Scott. Uh, John will be jumping in and out as he types away at a paper for class. Uh, say hello, John. Hi. All right. Uh, so the subject of today's podcast, uh, Scott's eating peanut butter and it's making me laugh. Um, the subject of today's podcast is how to be AF versus the K. Uh, what motivated me to do this was uh, attending Ohio Valley, judging the quarters debate, uh, and then also having one of the Chattahoochee teams, uh, Matt Azimi. What up, Azimi? Uh, just thought I'd do a shout-out. <laughs> Azimi uh, and I have a long conversation about debating the K, and I remember that I had notes uh, from it. And instead of going through all the notes, I was just going to break this down into the four tips for debating the K, when you're AF and get Scott and John to jump in and make me sound smarter than I am. So tip number one, uh, and this is something that I stole from John, uh, but Julie Hohen, who won the NDT for Emory and, you know, used to work at the ND and all that sort of stuff. Uh, this was her big comment and contribution to that. And that is tip number one, in order to beat the K, you must first have the vocabulary of the critique. In other words, you have to have the language to understand it. You have to be able to know what a team means when they say something as simple as biopower. You need to be able to answer questions about, you know, what is ontology versus epistemology. What does Hillman have to say about war? Uh, when someone says the id, the ego, um, what are they talking about when running the psychoanalysis K? I think the easiest way to start with this is to make a list of topic-specific critiques. Um, this is a much easier quest with high school debate than it is with college debate, in my mind, because in high school, you really only have, I don't know, what do you think, the biopower K, the race K, the militarism K, capitalism. What else would you add? Well, those are definitely the most common, but I think also one thing that hurts is that all the like nonsense that people read in college yeah. very quickly filters down. Because people in those areas, you know, hire people to work for them, and they bring their kind of like specialized, kind of more applicable to the college topic. A lot of time, arguments I think, and then try and like fit those square pegs in the round hole of whatever the high school topic is. Or is a long-winded say, way of saying that crap runs downhill no matter what the situation and critique stuff is certainly it. Um, what, a, so let's, let's use just sort of an example of capitalism because that's a critique that has been around for a while, will continue to be around, it's obviously relevant and there's literature on it tying to every topic. What are some terms you think that a, a 2A, in order to give, be a 2A, what are just a few terms that you think you need to know? Uh, and I don't think we're going to sit here and like define a bunch of words and stuff like that. I mean, but what are some things you need to know to be a 2A? on this topic when debating the cap K? Um, well, I think that probably the most common things you need to understand are some of the impact terminology that people use. 
So probably the most common impact that people went on with the cafe seems to be um, this like ethics. They often read this like Zizek and Daily card. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of teams just like understand that as being like ethics is the opposite of util. So whenever they hear that, they read like that stupid Isaac card about util to kind of respond to it. But really in this particular case, I think Turner agrees with me on this. The like argument made in that card is utilitarian. It's like more people are killed by capitalism. It's just we like don't see them because they're invisible. Or like, so I don't really know. But it's like we don't know all the deaths caused by capitalism. So we kind of assume that it's worse than alternative systems. Do you agree? Yeah, I'd say that that evidence really um, is more about the way that utilitarianism is applied in a fashion in our society that means that it doesn't actually achieve the greatest good for the greatest number. It's, it's applied structurally for the um, in order to benefit or maintain already powerful classes or social elements. Okay, so, so that's a great example. So you need that vocabulary because if you just hear ethics and think, here's my util card, it's really not a we need to be ethical or make ethical decisions first. It's more of a utilitarianism needs to be more ethical in the way it functions. So knowing that and understanding that's important. Uh, another example? Do you think it's important to know specific stuff like, you know, Marxism and what, who, who are the proletariat and, you know, that sort of stuff? I know Turner and I have talked about this before, but, like, it seems the way kids debate capitalism now, mm-hmm. any issue or discussion of class is, like, totally ignored. So I don't really think it seems that important. It's kind of counterintuitive that you would need to know anything about, like, traditional Marxist theory because everybody just kind of reads Zizak and it's like you're a particular struggle, not a universal one extinction. Hmm. That is such a sad <laughs> comment. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, like, in the context of, like, forward deployment, the AF is like, we should get out of Okinawa so we can keep other military bases in Japan. And the NAG is like, Cap K. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> yeah. Their, their link, then, is just that, like, capitalism creates security threats, so it's not so much about kind of, like, class analysis or anything, it seems like. An argument that I hear really that's really popular in the Cap K is this, like... You've got to treat capitalism as an addiction, and the way, and the way that if someone was drunk or an alcoholic, and you were confident that your intervention would not stop them from being an alcoholic, you're still obligated to do so. And I think to myself that a lot of teams don't answer that argument very well. Do you think this discussion of vocabulary helps beating an argument like that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times people will read the alternative, like, total withdrawal from capitalism. And I think that most apps don't really understand what that as a phrase means. Or the NAG will explain it as, like, we have to, like, totally withdraw from the apps capitalism or something arbitrary like that. And then the evidence they read is talking about something very different from, like, the judge writing NAG on a ballot in debate. So here's my first tip for having a vocabulary, and and I know you agree with this, but tip number one for improving your vocabulary is read the negative literature on the subject. So if you're a 2A, you 
<laughs> something fell. Uh, if you're 2A, you may want to, you know, get a camp CAPK file or a couple of them, read through them and see what they're saying, see what the arguments are, uh, and, and have a deeper understanding than just AP is CAP, CAP is bad, vote NEG. Is that a good yeah, place I mean, anytime that you have to answer something, you got to read it. Like, all the debates people see where they answer the politics just at the wrong way or something, it's like because they didn't look at the one and see closely. So obviously, if you're having trouble with a CAPK, reading a CAPK file to understand what the arguments are is definitely the first thing you should do. I, we both, well, well, I've enjoyed watching the first season of Boston Legal, as per your suggestion. And there's this episode where they're suing a company and they hand the one of the trial lawyers a deposition. And they're like, this is them disclosing their evidence. And she's like, it's 1,600 pages. Do you want me to read all of it? And he just looks at Denny Crane, looks at her and says, how will we know what to say if we don't know what they say? And then he just walks off. Uh, and I kind of thought of you because you do say that all of the time. And then some of our debaters that are the most K dummies, if you will, uh, the best assignment for them to do is, all right, you just lost to the aesthetics K, so your assignment is answers to the aesthetics K. Other suggestions for improving your vocabulary other than, you know, doing a research assignment or just reading files that are available? Uh, so tips for learning other than reading, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, just because I... I, I, don't I, know, I think this is one of those instances where there's really only one way. you got to bite the bullet on this one. <laughs> like, I agree with you, but... I right, watch YouTube I, videos that explain post-structuralism. Oh, yeah, post-structuralism. That video is so good. Um, but at home, there's lots of kids, people listening to this, and they'd be like, I don't have time to read. Cap K, where's I want the debating the Cap K for dummies list. There is none. Is what you're saying? No, they can't hear you shaking your head. No, John, you have to say. Sorry, I, I stepped out, so I didn't want to. I didn't know if people had already made this point. But um, one thing I would say is to try and read a little bit, um, not immediately looking for cards, and also reading outside of files a little bit too. Um, I think that. A lot of getting the vocabulary is learning to speak about some of these arguments in a way that is not, um, doesn't immediately conform to the argumentative needs of debate. So, you know, most of this stuff is written in a way that is not immediately adapted for the way that it is argued. Um, we break stuff up into link, impact, and alternative in a way that doesn't, does not map very uh, well onto a lot of how this work is done. And, you know, as with all other debate arguments, there is an element of distortion involved in trying to make uh, make these arguments conform to time limits and the, you know, a form in which people can understand them relatively easily. So in order to not limit your vocabulary immediately to a debate vocabulary, you have to read some of this material not confident that you already know exactly what the arguments are or exactly what the cards would look like. Um, that a lot of the way that you can find evidence that discusses these arguments is to understand that it's not going to kind of leap out at you immediately. you got to, you know, be a little bit more patient, I think, than usual. And it's also an area where that fits with the kind of 
the number of cards that you cut in this material is often doesn't have to be that high. You just need to understand a few arguments pretty well and be able to explain those arguments and sound, um, you know, confident and actually be confident that you know what you're talking about. There we go. We have it on tape. Turner admitting K-debaters don't cut very many cards. Um, <laughs> no, I agree with that. Like, I notice that, like, every summer when you do research with kids for the first time, you're like, we're going to write the Japan app. And within, like, ten minutes, they're like, what is the plan going to say? And you're like, you have to figure out what's going on before you write the plan. Kind of similarly, whenever I think I lead a research group of people working on the critique, you know, an hour into the library, they're like, oh, my God, we found the alternative card. And I'm like, well, what is the link? And they're like, we don't need to know the link. We've already got the alternative. And it's like, you need to understand what's going on pretty well before you can kind of put it into the debate categories. And I think people think about it backwards. They're like, I need to find a no alternative card without understanding what the argument is. And then the card they end up cutting is not very good because it doesn't really, they don't know the context that they need to use that in. Only bad politics debaters put the uniqueness in the shell before they figure out what the link argument is or why political capital is key. But, you know, that's tr- I think that's true of argumentation. And you've got to understand context before you put it in, and we don't take the time to understand context. Also, tip number two. So we started off with having a vocabulary. Uh, that was the first tip. The second tip, um, I know Scott agrees with this one. I, I don't, I don't, I'd like to hit, get Turner's opinion on it if he, it's not too busy and can jump back in, but it's that it's important for two ARs to have a template of how they have beaten the critique. By a template, I mean that you don't just beat the critique by having a bunch of answers and expecting the judge uh to do the work for you, but instead, uh, before the debate starts, you should think about the security K and think about how you are going to beat the security K. Are you going to attack the alternative, focus on the impacts of the AF, um, and minimize the impact to it? And so cohesively, there's still an impact to the AF, the alternative doesn't address it, and any external impact to their Link arguments is not that big. That's a strategy that equals an AF ballot, um, as opposed to a 2AR that's just sort of like, we've got link answers, we've got some alt answers, we've got a permutation answer, and and that's the strategy. Uh, instead, it means sitting down and thinking about it in the same way you would against a counterplan. Uh, often debaters, 2As on the Emory squad or 2As that I have in the Indie Lab each summer, uh, will ask me, you know, hey, they're reading this executive order counterplan. How do we beat it? And, I say, and, and we'll come up with a strategy. But those same conversations don't happen around critiques. Uh, you need to sit down and strategize and think. So without getting into specifics, uh, Scott, I'd like to give your thoughts on just sort of like the necessity of a template and when that process begins, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess kind of related to that, the thing that I think hurts affirmatives the most is when they debate kind of in the abstract, so they'll say, like, the alternative doesn't solve the case, or the case outweighs the critique. And so when you're thinking about strategy, like, if you debate the executive order counterplan, you think about, like, what advantages does the XO counterplan solve and not solve? And so agent counterplans in particular, you know, solve a lot of advantages that are just based on, like, getting troops out, but don't solve advantages based on, like, signal or something that has to be sent by, like, Obama acting. And similarly, when you debate the security critique, you know, if you have a hegemony advantage... And then, like a civilian casualty advantage or something, you know, your answers to the security critique for each of those advantages should be different because obviously they approach the issue of security differently. 
And so what Herndon was saying about having, you know, the argue, the alternative doesn't solve and the impact outweighs, you know, you need to think about what advantage is the alternative not solving and why, and what is the impact of that advantage, and why is that impact a good one? Like, why is it epistemologically sound, or how do we know what the impact of that is? Those are the kind of things you need to defend instead of just reading, like, generic evidence, like security is a good concept or threats do exist in the abstract that doesn't really relate to the specific things that you talked about in the 1AC. Even... Like, even more, like, I just think not enough people think about the way debate works. And a 2AR that is just really going for the permutation, but doesn't answer the alternative, where the neg is saying the alternative solves all of the F plus some other stuff, and makes a bunch of link arguments. And then they're just like, we're going for the perm, this is how we're going to win the debate. And that's it. That is not a strategically sound to AR. It's not a it's not a smart choice. If you talk that out, it's like any risk of link means that the neg should win that debate because there's no need to do the app. It solves all of it. So the permutation needs to be combined with certain things and just thought of in more depth. I mean, I think you're saying No, we're saying the same thing. We're just giving two examples. I'm giving an example of a two AR thinking things out in terms of presenting a winning strategy and, and you're saying tie that to the one AC, or at least that's the example I heard from you. Well, like in what you said there, I mean, you're basically saying that in order for the permutation to be a winning argument, there needs to be a net benefit. And so if the alternative solves the case, there's not going to be a reason the permutation is better. So what I'm saying is that when you approach the issue of how do you articulate why one of your advantages is a net benefit, you should be specific about it. So you might say, look, the security critique may deconstruct our hegemony impact but absent, you know, a pragmatic political strategy, we can't end drone strikes, for example. Mm-hmm. So drone strikes is a net benefit that their evidence doesn't really defend or critique, you know, the idea that we should not be killing civilians, for example. Yeah. And so instead of spending much time about why the alternative is just like political paralysis in the abstract, explain it specifically in the context of what are you talking about. I don't know, Turner, what do you think about that? Um... Yeah, I mean, I, uh, to sort of, I guess, reference some of the, my own stuff that I've written on this, there's a blog post that I wrote for the Georgia debate blog that has a section on sort of thinking about affirmative strategy against critiques as, um, choosing one of the major elements of that is choosing advantages that you feel prepared to defend. And you, you've already mentioned that, but just, to use that example, I don't think that I would ever read the hegemony advantage and the civilian casualties advantage together. That 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 to me is an example of the thing that is easiest to exploit, in my opinion, taking the perspective of neg critique strategy is sort of affirmative ideological dissonance or inconsistency. But that's sort of the, a major way that you can slip in um, sort of a, a wedge, you know, is to drive different parts of the affirmative um, apart or to, you know, ask why they're appearing in the same place at the same time. And, you know, that you want to make sure as an AF that you are able to defend a position that is more or less coherent. Um, in most certain, in most of there, there are some exceptions to this, but I think they're really limited. Um, that a lot of the sort of 
abstract or you know seemingly abstract questions that negative negatives raise about um, methodology or epistemology um, become much easier to apply to an AF when that type of inconsistency is there when you haven't thought ahead about sort of the like what is the what is the direction um, that we're trying to defend with this affirmative? In what direction do our advantages move? Or sort of what, you know, what ideological position do they um, start with? So just to be clear, you're okay with a hedge advantage as long as that is consistently your approach as opposed to mumbling that up with other advantages that aren't as consistent. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that that is a great... I don't think that is usually that great of a place to start. I will say that. You did kind of betray your liberal bias by saying that you didn't think hegemony was consistent with not killing civilians. Well, okay, how about this? <laughs> how, about, how about this? I will say, I will say that, you know, when we talk about a hegemony advantage in debate, yeah, we're not just talking about, you know, U.S. leadership is important in a number of areas or in a number of ways. We're talking generally about either Khalilzad or Kagan yeah, read as the terminal impact. And so that, that is really what I mean is almost, and that actually I think is maybe the, one of the sort of important things to keep in mind from this example is that another way in which negatives approach this strategy is through a lack of affirmative creativity. Mm. The number of times that the AF basically says and does the same things you know, and the particularly in terms of terminal impact, right? If that's that's the place where a lot of negative link arguments tend to be the highest quality because it's the place where we say the we say the most outrageous things that we're likely to say in any part of the debate. I mean, it, well, internal links too, maybe <laughs> relatively <but laughs> internal links too, maybe, but in, impacts in particular tend to be the place where we're sort of you know piling on for uh, tactical advantage and. As a negative, um, you know, as an element of negative critique strategy, one of the things that I think, um, you know, is most useful is to think, oh, you know, you know that the affirmative is sort of likely to be choosing from a pretty limited number of endpoints or goals or objectives, value positions, if you will, right? And so if you then design your position to respond to those likely terminal impacts, you're in pretty good shape. Um, and Hegemony is one of those where the appeal for the AF is just that they're guaranteed clash, right? And that, that I, this grows out of, I think, a real historical fear on the part of the AF that the real danger of the negative critical strategy is that, you know, well, we ha- we we don't know what they're talking about, so there's no way that we can actually clash with them. How can, how could we possibly beat this argument when we don't know what it says or they, you know, it's, it's shifty, it's, it's cheating, whatever, which I, I think most of those complaints are obnoxious. But the, the real thing there is that you instead should approach it, I think not, it is important to have a guaranteed point of clash. But in most of these circumstances, the point of clash isn't going to be or doesn't have to be the sort of, uh, you know, the most conservative impact versus uh, these critiques, particularly because a lot of the topics that we debate tend to be in a liberal <laughs> move in a, you know, ostensibly liberal direction. It's like, you know, you almost, you end up, I think, putting yourself in some strange places when your primary goal becomes the magnitude of your impact and that magnitude and direction of the impact is a way to guarantee clash. In most circumstances, I think that 
a better approach to sort of guaranteed clashes. Why is this to focus on the mechanism, right? I mean, to focus on the plan. Why is that, you know, it's not, well, I've made the, I've made the case in other places that, you know, we can't even think of the plan in isolation, but think of the plan and advantage in combination. Why are they necessary for one another? They, they should both, they should both be important. Why is this mechanism very important for pursuing this objective? And why is this objective important for either, you know, getting this mechanism implemented or, uh, you know, choosing this mechanism over another one? I guess is the better way to put it. Those are both great sets of advice. And I think that they can, I'm doing them a disservice by doing so, but they can be summed up with, you need to think about how you're going to beat the K before the end of the 2NR, or before the time the judge says, oh, I voted neg because the alt solves all the F and all you went for is a permutation. You know, that's just not going to cut it. Uh, you need to start thinking about those things and having a strategy. And that strategy sounds like it begins uh, with 2AC choice, with 1AC choice, uh, and with having a vocabulary so you can figure it out. Uh, the third tip I have, and, and this may be where we get a little more controversial so far, the... Uh, six-week Indy Junior Lab leaders have agreed, uh, is that uh, tip number three, don't shift your focus to the things the neg said. Uh, stay on point. Um, this tip comes from the fact that most 2As and 1ARs tend to overreact to things that neg say. Uh, the classic example is, uh, well, Greta Stahl, who is coach of Michigan State, uh, coached one of my high school debaters, who's now the director at Pinecrest High School, Garrett Applecop, and she used to say that Garrett was obsessed with getting distracted, uh, and when he was a young debater, freshman and sophomore at Michigan State, the cat poo would always distract him. So when he would debate Nick Miller or other K-debaters, the K-debater classic response is, oh, that's not what we're talking about, or, you know, you read a card that says Heidegger is a Nazi, classic K response is... Oh, that's not the Heidegger we read. We read from early Heidegger or, or just sort of something to, you know, distract from it. Well, step one is having a vocabulary. So if you read a card and the neg responds with, that's not us, and you don't have an explanation back, you haven't met tip one, which is have a vocabulary. But tip three is figuring out how you're going to answer the K and just sort of sticking with your guns, having a 2AC, a 1AR, and then a 2AR strategy that are consistent and fluid, and don't overreact to sort of negative shenanigans. Um, thoughts on that? Well, I think that, like, yes and no. Like, yes, you want to kind of continue to discuss your case and explain it, but I think a lot of times when people lose to critiques, it's because they don't have a specific answer to either some kind of trump card impact, like ontology first kind of things, okay. or it's because... Um, you know, they've gotten so obsessed with focusing on one part of their case that they kind of missed the bigger picture. So I think you need to do those two things kind of in combination. So if the NEG, you know, gets up and talks a lot about why ontology always nuclear war, you know, you do need to talk about your case, but you need to talk about it in relation to ontology. Yeah, I'm not necessarily talking about your case. I think I'm talking about what well, you and John agreed and then gave examples of how you have a template of how you respond to the K. Not getting off that template. 
So that seems to be a criticism of the first. Your your template can't be our case is good, hedge rocks, extend Kalilazad and Kagan. That can't be your strategy. Well, it can. <laughs> it can be your strategy. That's true. Um, in fact, it should be your strategy. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, John, they cannot hear you shaking your head no, no matter how violently you whip your hair back and forth. He's uh, like Willow Smith. He is Willow Smith in it over there. Um, so, so you disagree. You think that there are certain things that always happen in the block that the AF needs to respond well, I mean, to. I mean, give me an example of what you mean by so, cat poo. Okay. I'm not not so, familiar with that term of okay. art. <laughs> it's fair. It's, it's uh, highly specific. I'll send you some vocabulary on it later. You can familiarize yourself. Um, so security K. I've said that I think that the flaws with the security K are, one, it is difficult for the neg to have an external impact that's unrelated to the AF. I think, two, the link is very, very strong to a majority of the AFs on the topic, on this particular topic, as long as the neg wins that the advantages are what should be evaluated. And I don't, you know, if your judge is one of those judges, it's just going to be like, only vote on the plan, then you're not going to lose the security K anyway, so who cares? Um, so the combination of a weak impact, strong link, I think a strong 2AR focus is um, impact defense, Alt doesn't solve the AF, and focusing on a 1AC advantage that is external to the question of securitization. So basically just sort of minimize the impact of their disad and focus on an advantage that the alt doesn't solve. It's a strong strategy. Uh, you can disagree about that, but that's just an example. If the 2A, 2 and R um, sort of responds to that with like a, a bunch of responses about why the alternative does solve your environment advantage and it gets into it and stuff like that, I think a tendency of 1As is to be like, oh, they made a bunch of arguments for why the alternative does solve our environment advantage. They really focused in on that part of the debate, and thus, as a result, I'm not going to extend it anymore because they've said that the alt solves. That's being distracted by the cat poo. That's a negative team saying, oh, you don't, the alternative does solve the AF. Well, if you don't think it does, you have the, cat, the vocabulary and the template as to why the alt doesn't solve the AF, that's where you should spend your focus regardless of the negative. You should have a strategy that is consistent and coherent and not respond to the neg coverage. Because if they're good, they're going to overcover the weaknesses, right? Yeah, that's like the classic like consultation issue. Like the neg knows what the good arguments are, so they just bury them, and then the AF doesn't go for them. Absolutely. So I agree with you in that sense. But, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I guess, I mean, uh, before I go off on a rant here, I guess I'll ask Turner. So, Turner, if you were going for the security K and the AF kind of emphasized the strategy that Herndon is talking about, that there's not a big impact and we have, like, a non-security advantage that outweighs that, what do you, as a negative, think about that affirmative strategy? Well, it, I think a lot of that stuff would depend on what the matchup and the judge uh, meant for your negative strategy. So, for instance... Because you were just like, yeah, inclusive. Yeah, I mean, okay, so... so <laughs> After his, I'm in, not a cheater, right? In my, in my, continuing, <laughs> in my continuing battle... On this issue that, you know, has been going on now, well, since... Since the since, Sam War began. Since roughly 2002. <laughs> I believe Reagan um, actually declared... I, I really think that in a lot of these circumstances, the negative could be well served by um, making their argument um, potentially AF-inclusive. 
or I guess what I would say there is that the app, the neg can make arguments that because they um, attack the concept of plan focus, they limit the ability of the AF just kind of to respond with, well, here's an advantage that you don't solve that outweighs all of these other questions and to insulate their, their debate, right? Because that kind of what I was saying earlier, approaching this from the perspective of the neg, asking the question of what does it say about how our society tends to make policy decisions allows us to choose those things in isolation is a question that's raised and I think dealt with very significantly by a lot of these negative approaches. So that, that I just, I think the evidence that Meg will probably have evidence about this AF strategy, you know, sort of the, or the form that this AF strategy takes. That said, there are many, many circumstances in which the negative is likely to be constrained by the perspective of their judge um, to not be able to do that, you know, with their one with the setup of their one NC. So in that circumstance, I think you know it, it's a decent strategy, and it, it then raises the question of whether or not the neg can begin to use context to link all of the different advantage questions sort of back into one central idea. You know, so for instance, uh, let's take, uh, I'll take the example of warming red as a net, red as an advantage to an app that is also, you know, re- reads a number of security advantages and is a mechanism of, you know, troop withdrawal. So it's arguably in the realm of, you know, national security policy is the mechanism as well. Um, the, Negative can probably make some arguments about uh, climate security or environmental security that, you know, I, I don't, in the abstract, I don't think are that great. Because the, if the AF hasn't chosen to read sort of a set of arguments about environmental scarcity as a, as a source of conflict or climate change as a national security issue, the link is probably not that strong. But the overall context might make the link a lot better. Right there, without making your your negative strategy act inclusive, you could still say, "Well, we all know from you know inside the debate perspective that this matches a, a particular ideological strategy, which is to deploy this as though it were unconnected, and yet simultaneously derive an advantage from the way in which these issues have been connected. Right to make climate something that you know is a reason for changing our security policies." Vernon's um, eyes just glazed over. What are, I mean, well, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. You and I have talked about this no, no, like no, no, ten no. times, so I'm on the same page. Let, let, before I get insulted, my eyes didn't glaze over because that's smart. I, I, that is the correct negative response. Uh, and, and the two of you, I, I can't think of two better people I would rather hear talk about what the proper negative response to that security strategy is. Got that. What I'm interested in is a podcast on AF yeah, yeah, versus yeah. the security okay. case. Yeah, okay. So you're going for frameworks. Yeah, so I'm going, going to talk about No, 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 you can. But the only reason I gave an example, and I wanted to give an example to you two K-hacks, is because you don't want to get distracted. And in my oh. mind, your example of focus on how the alt sort of isolates to, you know, we solve this advantage, we want to have a discussion about this problem and t- problematic part of the advantage and stuff like that. But as an example of something, the negative should continue to go for their strategy and their advantage. and should, yeah. should continue, They shouldn't jump ship because you made a logical and smart argument in response to it. They should stick with that ship and continue to think and, and respond to what you've said. 
yeah, uh, yes, I will. So there's two things I would say here. One is as as much time as it you know and you know issues that it brings in to start discussing this from the question the perspective of the neg. I am doing this not even so much as a hack, but just as an acknowledgement that, you know, as with all debate questions, you have to be thinking about both sides of an issue in order to understand and anticipate where the debate will go. That was Herman's first tip before he told you don't talk about that. Right. I mean, well, I say this on this issue, not because I don't think that you appreciate this, but because this is something that I think there is such a strong move to say... Uh, they're all they're all just cheating anyway. Oh yeah. <laughs> that that they're we only you know I've heard people basically only approach the neg strategy from the perspective of well they're basically just making things up. <laughs> and you know if that that is the that is a response that is I think more likely to get you in trouble because it means that you don't ever think about what evidence does the neg have available that allows them to take this approach, right? It's just the, like, as with all, you know, watching how people debated and, and anticipating that is very important. So you got to be thinking about what the neg is likely to do. Can, can we that, all but, agree that the people in the debate community who are saying, who are continuing to stick by their guns of the neg is just making all of this up are doing the community a disservice I mean, well, it's critical theory that does the community <laughs> on its way out in academia and life. It is. It's like Stephen uh, Stephen Weil and I had a conversation last week about because he's Russian studies or whatever. He was like, you would you would be amazed at the amount of times in this literature, which would seemingly have nothing to do with critical literature, someone's like, let's have a discussion about the epistemological framework for the research that goes into studying this stuff. It's just like it's a chapter in every single book. How do we still have people teaching and educating our kids about debate that are just sort of like hostile to the notion that these questions are relevant? Yeah, I just, I mean, sorry, but no, I, I don't. You, you sidebarred me, so I sidebarred. Yeah, me. if you, if, I, I just, I think that the the major answer to the you know this isn't policy relevant is library. It's like if you if you there is a reason that you know no matter how you write a topic or what you write a topic about, that these questions come into play mm-hmm. and um, that they often come into play in terms of the way that the policy is being analyzed. I mean, this is not something that is just sort of like, well, every year they go to the philosophy section and they, re- you know, that yes, people can be guilty of reading the same three cards over and over again. And I, you know, I can only be so You're talking about meat cows on spicer. <laughs> oh, you meant like, you meant three K cards. Okay. I can only I can only be so I can only be so critical on this issue. But um, you know that I, I just I don't I I don't really understand how you can take the position that this stuff is irrelevant. I, I do have some appreciation for the challenge that it brings resource wise to be researching all of this material simultaneously, and I think a major problem with a lot of this is that, you know, we have one thing that we've called the critique, and now it takes so many different forms and draws from so many different sort of schools of thought or approaches. Oh, yeah. You know, they're, they really, it's not one set of questions, and it is very difficult to research, and it does, you know, it, it requires a lot of kind of inside baseball, I think, to read effectively. Uh, over time, so you know, I, I can appreciate that as a challenge. But in terms of the, you know, trying to say 
It's not relevant. At least. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's that would suck. All right, so back to what we were talking about. Uh, I guess to get to the aft part of what Turner was talking about before Hernan cut him off, just to kind of restate Turner was saying that, you know, if the aft has hegemony impacts, climate impact that's not securitized, climate change kills otter or whatever, that you can connect your kind of Gennaro security link to kind of identify a unifying theme in what the aft is talking about. So I know, like, when Turner and I talked about this before, one thing he pointed out was, like, state centrism, for example, is a critique linked frequently in security literature that realism is state-centric. And so then you can point out that the AF's approach to the environment is state-centric, that it assumes we need to negotiate international agreements to have effective action against climate change, like the diplomacy advantage that people read to Afghanistan. And so state-centrism kind of unites those two claims, even if they don't read a security impact. So I think what Hernan was talking about having an AF strategy is that, like, you can't have the NAG have thought through more the critique versus your case than you yes. have. So, like, if I was affirmative and someone said, you know, these two advantages are linked by state centrism, so our generic, you know, kind of impact applies, and I would immediately start thinking about how can you re-spin that. So, like, how can how can the fact that state centrism unites these two things be useful to you? So, you know, one article that I was reading was kind of pointing out that the fact that state centrism can, you know, be used to mobilize concern for international environmental problems that affect more than one country kind of deconstructs the notion that state centrism is purely like rational utility maximization for that one state. And it disproves the fact that states can't cooperate under that theory. So if they said state centrism unites these advantages, you know, I'd say yes. And the fact that state centrism can be concerned with more than security, but can be concerned with multinational environmental problems kind of disproves whatever, you know, kind of K impact they have about why exclusive state security logic kind of inevitably produces conflict or violence, that it's incapable of tackling global problems in a cooperative manner. Um, and that may be, you know, quote-unquote defense, I guess. Um, but, you know, if you read some evidence to support that in other instances, you know, that's an offensive argument that the critique, once they've identified state centrism as a link, when you say it's good, they can't say the alternative then solves that. I mean... Oh, sorry, I fell asleep there. In, in general, I think the, you know... The vocabulary question that we discussed earlier is in large part a link question, right? I mean, the the not our Heidegger, not our Zizek thing that bothers people a lot, you know, that, that stuff, those arguments become a lot easier to defeat if you understand the distinction that the neg is trying to make. Because a lot of times, I think, those distinctions either A, don't hold, or B can then be you. They also then could be used in a different way, right? The fact that the negative tries to link out of arguments that you've read doesn't mean that those arguments either haven't served a strategic purpose or can't serve a strategic purpose towards the end of the debate. Okay, um, you know that. For example, um, well, I'm, <laughs> let, me, let me try and think of a good example on this one. I don't mean to cut you off, but like the best example I've seen of that is I saw a team read the like. You know, Zizek is crazy, believes in violent, bloody revolution. And then the nag was like, well, no, we don't defend that part. So then the AF read a different card from Zizek that was like, revolutions that aren't violent and bloody always fail because, like, blah, 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 blah. So then the nag couldn't really, like, dance out of this indicted alternative very effectively, I thought, because they had already cornered themselves in a position where by trying to get out of an indict of their author, they left themselves without really any good solvency arguments for the alternative. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, and, you know, to on that example, you know, it, 
if the neg starts to back off of that claim, for instance, on, you know, violent revolutionary opposition, that's an example of a place where then a lot of the arguments that the neg is making about the need for an uncompromising form of opposition may also then, you know, you, you have the, the link arguments that the neg is making <laughs> may start to really crumble, right? It's like the, the reason that it might be useful sometimes to have somebody who's talking about the importance of, you know, a, a, a very violent and extremely negative form of revolutionary activity is that that establishes a very easy point of clash for the neg. Well, if the neg has to back off that debate with regards to alternative issues, that also changes the way that they get to argue the link. And so it's like you, you might not even end up winning the question of, you know, whether or not this has to be a, uh, the alternative will end up being a very, you know, violent um, and failed form of revolutionary activity, and you could still be getting other benefits from that as a result of the neg backing off. Okay. Can't believe I kept you all on topic through two tips. Uh, third tip. three. Uh, well, to argue that you were on topic for that tip is... A bit of an exaggeration. Okay, tip number four. This is the last one. I'm going to finish this up strong. Uh, and that is know your answers to the stock K shenanigans. Um, by that I mean things that critique teams say. And you heard this a lot in both what John and, and Scott were just saying is that regardless of the critique, there's a lot of sort of like themes that run um, throughout. Um, just like an example, like there's no value to life and state-centered focus is the link and uh, serial policy failure and, you know, ontology comes first, discourse comes first, stuff like that. Uh, I think this is the this is probably the tip that teams need to get uh, prepared for before they go any further if you don't. And I think that it's almost like having a file that answers the stock arguments that critique teams make uh, that is just one or two arguments. I mean, obviously, you're not going to read seven cards on there is always value to life or answer to no value to life. But you need to have thought out how you're going to answer these arguments, including cards if necessary, and have those quickly accessible in a file or you know, if you're still paper on, in a in a in an accordion that just sort of deals with you know K crap, and that helped because a lot of K teams win debates uh, on a lot of these sort of arguments that don't pass the muster test or are just sort of like debate jargon and not tied to it. In fact, a lot of the people who like the K get upset that this wins. Calculability or calculations bad. These sorts of things are all true. Um, you started a project that was to answer these sorts of K arguments, didn't you, this summer with the three and arc? Uh, yeah, I finished my half of it. Oh, who, uh, who failed to finish their half? That's neither here nor there. Um, but we did uh, turn out, you know, uh, answers to the majority of these things. But even more important than having a card on this, I think it's just like not letting the other team define it for you. And so generally what happens, I think, is that the nag says something like, you know, your is you're of the ontology where we can like master the world or like we're omnipotent and that's bad and that's after the AF has read a one AC that was like we can't win the war in Afghanistan we should get out because we're losing and the AF never points out like actually we our critique of that or like our ontology is not X it's Y or our epistemology isn't positivism it's something else and so I think just most importantly 
thinking through what you, what actually your business is and being ready to defend that, you know, will help you. Because no matter what critique you debate, even if you don't have answers to what they specifically say, you know, X epistemology is bad, if you can just win that you're not X, that you're something else, you know, then that's going to be sufficient probably for you to defeat them. So I don't even think it's necessarily you have to have a card, although obviously having cards is better than not having cards. But just, like, thinking through, you know, what is your position on these things and not letting the neg define it. Like, you would never let the neg get up and be like, your advantage is hegemony, hegemony bad, when you write a free trade but in critique debates, that's essentially what people do. Yeah, all the They're time. like, you're realists. It's like, no, we said, you know, free trade and economic growth were good. That's not really the primary concerns of Mearsheimer and Walt. So I think just like being able to understand what the kind of like academic basis for your advantages are and explaining why that's good. Yeah, for Even sure. if you don't have specific answers to a variety of critiques, you'll be in better shape. I don't know, Turner, what do you think about all those kind of like, I also think it's like, the nag oftentimes will try and fit their K into the framework of we have an epistemology first and an ontology first claim. Even when the or reps are key when they read a critique that's like linked to the plan that they just don't want to like deal with your offense. Um, I think that one, it, the number of cards that are available on sort of some of these uh, golden oldie arguments has gone up. Um, but that you want to be very careful for that not to mean that the amount of thinking that you do about them goes down. So it is... I don't think there's a lot of uniqueness for decreased well, thinking. Right. So <laughs> you have, you have, I, I think in general, the sort of quality and... Um, it's a threshold. The, the quality and amount of affirmative critique evidence has increased dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as I think on these issues... Oftentimes, more than others, you know, the ability to have cards is important, but um, not sufficient. Mm-hmm. And so, to go through the example that you gave of, about Afghanistan, the Master of the World example, um, you know, it, it's certainly a debatable question. It, the negative could, you know, make some arguments about sort of the way in which the structure of the affirmative maintains this you know, an approach of ordering or mastery even in a circumstance where they say the war in Afghanistan is lost or unwinnable. But the AF certainly has something useful to say there. Um, And the reason I choose that example is that that, I think that that argument, you know, effectively made and explained is probably worth more than any card that you would find on the issue of, you know, do you have a, a, a Cartesian you know, approach of mastery, mastery and uh, ordering in your, you know, uh, method or epistemological background to your affirmative, right? And so, you know, having a set of cards that are available for you on blocks is useful, but as, and not, you know, this is one of those things I've said to many people many times, it's just, um, you have to be careful to then make sure that you think about these arguments in the context of whatever AF it is that you're reading. It shouldn't be the case that you can just pull out the same set of answers to value to life, uh, you know, blocks that you have that will generously say you wrote last year, um, and use the same things again. Yeah, it shouldn't even be the case that that's true for your last affirmative, right? I mean, you, if you're really actually thinking about this set of arguments, 
um, you know, consistently the way that we have implied earlier on the podcast, you, you wouldn't do that. You would, you would think about them new each time that you're, you know, thinking about reading an app that you have any chance that you will read, you know, when you think it's likely that the negative might go for one of these arguments. We should always start our podcasts around Turner, even if he says he's too busy to participate. <laughs> he like he likes the ability to not participate. It's great. It's true. I do like that ability. So, anything to add? No. I like at no value to life. Do you need a card? Well, I think that the majority of arguments that people make to answer value to life are backwards. They normally say there are subjective criteria that give value to life, like ice cream, roller coasters, etc. And I think instead what you want to be saying is that the value to life is objective. It's not determined by any individual person. Because if value is subjective, then it can be loss. If it's objective, then it cannot. So I think just the idea that we should protect the sanctity of life, not the quantity, or not the quality, because that's not the same. See, my understanding is that that argument is that it's subjective and therefore impossible to make decisions. We, sh- we must assume that it exists because it is subjective. So it's like a little nuance on that. Well, the majority of times people just read a card that's like, Nazi doctors decided there was no value to life. Yeah. And like usually that's what the critique is saying. It's not, They're not saying, you are capitalist, therefore I decide you have no value to life. They're saying the system of capital... Acknowledges a world in which it des- it can decide what lives have value and don't, and that that is bad. And then your card is like it's bad when Nazi doctors decided when there was yeah, or was no, not a value to life. Well, but here's the problem: it's always like this way of thinking creates a world where there is no value to life. That way of thinking already exists, so the assertion that to me it always resounded with no, I can decide whether I have no value. Well, like to you're, life. I mean, you're you're doing the like Dylan Keenan, yeah. But it's not. I, I, I don't think that those those value to life arguments ascribe to the kind of concepts of causality in a one to one mechanism the same way disadvantages do. That all economic decline causes war. Like calculative thinking, Heidegger is never like anytime you calculate anything, there's no loss of value. It's that the way you approach things calculatively obscures other ways of knowing. Sure. That indeed give life meaning. So it's not like you were a fetus. You calculated how much milk you wanted to drink, and then your life had no value from that point on. Which is like, but that is the way it's debated. Term. I mean, it can, but I don't. I don't know that I've ever seen the net. I mean, obviously, the nag saying that would be stupid because that 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 your your framing of it assumes the concept of uniqueness, which obviously the nag wants to obscure. Uh, okay, you love that word obscure when we talk about uniqueness and and the gay, but it's sort of like calculative. The neg goes through such a such a struggle to make the hyper generic, super specific. I mean, I guess if you're saying the neg reads evidence that's not about the AF and then attempts to themselves apply it to the AF, yes, yes, I guess. I guess I don't see why that's a bad thing. Well, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that arguments that are universalist that discuss or comment on the state of human nature uh, that are based on something like capitalism or biopower or any of these just sort of like systems of human interaction that exist, 
I mean, they already are starting from the position where capitalism is dominating. It is the way the world currently works. And the AF is just another example of that. Biopolitics is a theory of interaction. Governmentality dominates the way we think, of which the AF is an example of that. And then to have an impact that suggests that there is no value to life, a claim made by the AF in response that says, this isn't true, here is an example, why is that well, not an answer? Well, because in the same sense that, like, if, I don't view value to life as a categorically different impact than biopower. When you say biopower causes genocide, sure. you're not saying biopower genocides everyone every single time it's used. Okay. Agreed. Similarly, when you say biopower destroys value to life, sure. you're not saying Herndon being biopolitical Monday morning means no value to life globally Monday evening. Okay. Agreed. I don't think that judges evaluate it and debaters debate it that way. But that's an entire different podcast about how the quality of K debating needs to dramatically improve. Agree or disagree? I've never seen a team make the argument that any link, you know, your capitalist, your biopower, whatever, meant there was no value to life globally. Dude, I judged a debate this weekend where the team is like, we've isolated biopower links to the AF. Therefore, after the plan... The uh, the soldiers will just be put back into South Korea uh, as a result of the thinking that occurs, and no one there will have value to life. This is a quality high school team, like, making finals no, of tournaments. <laughs> I mean, I'll start with they probably explained it better than you do. Um, <laughs> but... Okay, touche. I mean, it's certainly possible that they teams, did. They did beat the crap out of the other. That team could so. have seemingly generalized like that, but I think that's like okay. I, I guess I, one thing that I kind of view when I approach debate is that like anytime I hear an impact, I just kind of start from the baseline presumption that it's like at best a one in ten possibility. So like economic decline causes war, at best one in ten times mm-hmm. because I think people automatically assume that anytime you have an impact card that says like decline in X equals war. Yeah. They assume it's like a direct one-to-one relationship. Any decline in acts like, I chose not to buy a candy bar, which was a dip in consumer spending, which collapsed the economy, thus me. Like, I don't, I just don't. Like, you've never chosen not to buy the candy bar. That's a good point. Um, but you see what I'm saying? Like, I guess, I just kind of assume that when people make these kind of arguments, that they're intelligent enough to understand they're not actually saying in every instance, okay. not minuscule use of... So you think we need cards that say value to life is objective and it exists no matter what? I think that's a better card than saying ice cream gives value to life. Does someone actually have a card that ice cream gives value to life? Well, no. I mean, ever that's like the, the one of the things in the list people always rattle off. Oh, okay. It does. But if ice cream gives life value, then taking it all away and not having ice cream... Ooh. Means no value. You see what I'm getting at? Ooh, but you know what? So if they had a card that's like Ooh. capitalism kills ice cream, but capitalism screwed. means we can always buy ice cream. In communist Russia, the ice cream gets taken away. But ice cream is a finite commodity, and capitalism mm. produces infinite wants. Damn it. Okay. Such a hack. All right. So just review because I like reviewing. Tip one: uh, have a terminology and a vocabulary. I believe it's a three O. Agreeing for that one. Two. Uh, you should have a template on how you're going to answering the K that John says begins when you begin to think about your 1AC versus K teams. And so I think that one was a 3-0 as well. Uh, the third tip was don't shift around 
to what they say. Don't respond to cat poo by changing your arguments. Have a template and stick to it. Uh, you know, there was some discussion about what it means to have a template and thinking it back out. And maybe that's not a third tip, uh, because both John and Scott wanted to insist that, that your, your strategy needs to make sense if you're going to stick with it. And then tip number four, think about, don't just have cards, but think about how you as an after are going to respond to the generic sort of K stuff that all K teams say that they get away with. So I guess that's it. Looking forward to the indie where we will have many more of these discussions. I actually I want to talk about one more thing because I okay. always like reference this. Nobody has any idea what I'm talking okay. about. Okay, and you may have no idea what I'm talking the about. The 60th minute of the podcast on the first. This game. may be Go. all Turner, but Turner years ago promised me that he would write a post about this, and then never did. Uh oh. So I would like I want to talk about the like no link is offense thing that we talked about. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, so why don't you explain it then? So. But- I, I may have been speaking a little bit hyperbolically to say no link is offense. But I will say that I think that there is a set of um, arguments surrounding the question of links that AFs dramatically underutilize, um, which is that the affirmative strategy should, you know, people always want to get back to comparing people always want the uniqueness to play a role for them on the AF against Christmas. And it's like, we, we were just having a conversation about this, but I think that they pretty much do that almost always in the direction of the negative has no uniqueness for the impact. One thing that I would say is that affirmatives can benefit from discussing the way in which their advocacy represents a departure from the status quo not just in terms of the action being taken, but also in terms of the justification being provided. Right? So, the, whether the, the, if the AF acknowledges or is able to put their affirmative in a context of, um, you know, here is the way in which this, um, issue is usually presented or represented. And here are the set of arguments that typically our society draws upon in dealing with this set of questions. Here is why we've chosen these, you know, limited few or this limited one. Our advocacy and the way in which we are advocating for the plan is an important departure from the status quo in the sense that, yes, other things that the negative, um, in theory, could have read links about, but wasn't able to because the AF did not put those in the 1AC, those are also ways in which the 1AC may be able to say, we are trying to shift the debate or the frame or the representation of this issue in a way that your criticism of our option cannot do. That this is one of the dangers of a critical, you know, I've said this a few times in teaching this set of issues that it's important to understand that affirmatives are generally criticisms of the status quo. The degree to which they are criticisms of a, an ideology or a value system in the status quo is oftentimes questionable, but sometimes they are that as well. And this is what I mean by no link as an offensive argument is that a negative approach that is unable to say this is how we should debate this issue, or this is how this issue should be presented in public debates, 
is unable to respond to a series of AF arguments about this is the you know set of reasons or um, you know form of advocacy that we think can serve as a useful replacement for some very destructive ways of representing this issue in our society. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. One way that I kind of like crudely explain this, I think, is that it's like omission good almost, and like in the terms of like link of omission sense. It's like when people read cards like silence is violence, it's like that is kind of true. And the fact that we chose to not use dominant justifications, the same way when you choose to not talk about structural violence, you're, you know, not connecting those phenomenon is bad. Choosing to talk about Afghanistan in a different language than the dominant one similarly marginalizes the dominant perspective, if that makes sense. And I think that that is a useful way to discuss sort of the, you know, this gets back to... The, there are sort of two questions that I think are, are useful um, for this argument beyond what we've already said. The first is that this is a way to connect the importance of a traditional policy advocacy or, uh, you know, an advocacy that calls upon state institutions to act um, that the negative may have difficulty capturing. They're providing a sort of this, this is a positive reason to do this. Um, you know that that a, a lot of the ways that negative negatives write their arguments and phrase their arguments in the one and C don't they are unlikely to combine very well with that um, way of um, approaching the issue. Uh, the other thing is that um, oh, um, I sort of lost my train of thought here. Uh, Was your train of thought a missile the size of the Chrysler <laughs> Building? <laughs> Uh, oh, that, um... This is a podcast within a podcast. Yeah, sorry. Wrong. <laughs> sorry, I, really, I lost that one. All right. right. Um, I got it. No, but... Oh, oh, okay, sorry. So here we go. Um, in the same way in which most of these negative positions... Well, not most. Okay. A, a number of negative positions of this genre... Um, have a way to call into question a strong distinction between omission and commission. Um, the AF can use those same arguments that the negative is, is likely to use, um, for example, in, in co-optation style claims. It's like, well, just because you didn't, you know, you don't want your argument or advocacy to be used in that way, here's how it will be used, you know. It's like, this is, it, you know, it used to be that, like, well, that's not how the Bush administration will use the plan. Kind of, that that argument was, you know, Such all over the place. Well, the same the the same applies to a lot of negative arguments, right? Opposition to uh, a number of actions that might be taken, for instance, in this topic that withdraws U.S. military presence. Mm-hmm. You know, saying we're opposed to that withdrawal, you're not in control of how that um, advocacy or that you know kind of claim will play out. Either, right? Sure. And so, once the negative has made a number of arguments that kind of call into question commission omission, not only do you get to use the, you know, here are ways in which our argument reshapes or reframes the debate. Mm-hmm. You can then you have some additional options to deploy against the alternative in terms of you know, the more that they say we are not capable of reshaping this debate all on our own, that it's totally outside of our control, the more that negation also brings into play a lot of stuff that, you know, is really unpleasant and completely outside of the negative's control as well. 
That's so true in the context of like military deployment and your like Bush administration thing. Because in the lead into the Iraq War, all those Bush people were like, "We're creating our own reality." Like they used all the kind of like postmodern jargon to justify intervention. So now when the nag is like, "We shouldn't pull out of Afghanistan because reality is socially constructed," they are the Bush administration. So, so it's I, just it, it's framing the status quo and the ass departure from that status quo as a link term. Yeah. And then do you research flaws with the status quo approach? Like well, you should be you should be thinking okay, so in the same way that you should be thinking about advantage choice for the one AC, mm-hmm. all of these arguments you should already have some ability to evaluate the context in which this set of policies is usually debated. So if you approach the topic from the question of, you know, it can never be reduced to just pure plan focus, but is also a question of how do, um, you know, plan of plans of action and, and value structures or objectives or advantages, what you know, whatever language you want to use, mm-hmm. how do those things work together or, or why do they work together in certain ways you yeah. know, so well or so negatively? Mm-hmm. Um, that would mean that this set of questions would be something that you'd be thinking about from the beginning of the topic. So it's like, you know, you don't, you don't just look at the, what is being debated. You think of, and this is people doing totally conventional advantage research are also doing this in the sense that they are finding advantages. So why do people talk about this issue or what do they say is important about this issue? But if you think about it a little bit more as a pattern or as a structure, so it's like, why, uh, what is the sort of set of reasons that typically gets um, used in this area? That becomes a way to sort of map out both what negative critique strategies are likely to look like mm-hmm. uh, and a way to design affirmative strategies that utilize the concept that we just discussed. It's like you are much, you're in a much better position to describe the, the, this gets at one other concept about affirmative critique strategy I think is useful to mention, which is that the affirmative always operates under constraints. They operate under resolutional constraints, but they also operate under the constraints of uh, the, you know, the institutional action of the federal government, all that kind of stuff. Those constraints can also be productive because they are constraints that in general our um, advocates in our society have to respond to or have to act within. Those constraints don't just come out of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. They're not arbitrary. And because they're not arbitrary, you have to examine the sort of like, well, given a set of constraints, why are people responding in a particular way or why might it be useful to respond in a particular way? Apps most often go in the direction, go in the opposite direction. They interpret fiat as a tool for thinking about affirmative strategy as completely unconstrained or unlimited. Right, it's just the, like mm-hmm. the most the most important thing about the AF is fiat. That is the way in which we weigh our case against the negative. We have to imagine the implementation of the plan. Well, I think in a lot of circumstances, the degree to which fiat is constrained, both by the resolution and kind of by the limitations of how things are written about, how they are argued, is a useful strategic resource for the AF. Right, it's like. Think about it. We're so used to thinking of it as, you know, that, well, we imagine the plan being enacted that very rarely does the AF think about how a particular argumentative strategy is less or more likely to achieve something like the plan. And it's like, 
apps are taught not to think about the questions of persuasion that are always raised in advocacy. And since advocacy requires persuasion, right, or that this is, I think that's an argument that is useful for the app to have as their context, okay? It's like, why might we choose particular avenues of persuasion, even if they're not untainted or unproblematic, but, you know, could be better than either a comparative set of persuasive rationales or reasons, or also just they reflect constraints that we can't get rid of anytime in the near future. What made you bring that up? <clears throat> just thought it was an interesting and topical discussion. Yeah, and then one, I guess one other thing related to the no link is offense is that I think that sometimes you can reduce the negative link arguments kind of crudely down to their like a critique of generalization or like a critique of like attempting to use like kind of a universal theory and why that's bad. So, you know, the security critique is like, you know, they're not everyone is a threat. You need to evaluate things like culture and identity. For example, a lot of the like constructivists say things like that. And so I think that a lot of times when the negative reads kind of generic link evidence and attempts to make it universal and apply it in maybe situations that it doesn't apply, no link can be offense because the kind of method of thought that they're criticizing is demonstrated by their link arguments. And I think the best example of this is like people who read Heidegger, it's like the the reason calculative thought is bad is because it crowds out other modes of being or ways of thinking. And so when their response to everything literally is to label it calculative, the critique of calculation becomes all-encompassing and obscures other ways of knowing. So, like, if you can point out, like, why you're not really the kind of calculative thought they're talking about, and they're like, no, calculative thought is such a broad category and encompasses everything, then you can say the fact that we don't link is offense because it proves that their link argument is the thing that tries to universalize all thought into kind of one system and ignore the possibility of alternative non-calculative systems. Um, so... You know, I think that that actually, you know, I guess it's kind of defense, but it can actually be, I think, an offensive argument for why their link argument being backwards means you should win. Turner is nodding again, but this time in agreement with the record show. The record has shown it. All right. All right, and I think we'll wrap that up there. So thanks for listening to another three in our podcast. Uh, this is Scott Phillips along with James Herndon and uh, John Turner. I can't Faith in